Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видео никто не слушал. Послушайте Россия сегодня сейчас. вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, в я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. It appears to have been the hack of the century. It targeted the U.S. Commerce Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Pentagon, the Treasury Department, the Energy Department, the U.S. Postal Service, and the National Institutes of Health. And those are just the ones we know about. The intruders spent nine months exploring U.S. government networks and stealing sensitive data. And the whole thing appears to have been a sophisticated espionage operation masterminded by the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service. So what does it all mean and what happens now? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center for Global Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is the one and only only John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. John also served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally, and is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. These days, John, like me, is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Great to see you again. Glad to be here. Always enjoy it. Glad to have you. Also joining us from an undisclosed location in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area is David Venable, a former intelligence officer for the U.S. National Security Agency and currently vice president of cybersecurity at Masergi. Dave is also a member of the Cyber Advisory Council and an instructor on cybersecurity at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. You're actually the first Texan to appear on this podcast that is uh, produced by the University of Texas. So, Dave, I, I wanted to start with you. As far as we understand, the hackers attach their malware to a software update from SolarWinds, which is an Austin, Texas-based company that many federal agencies and thousands of companies, in fact, worldwide, use to monitor their computer networks. SolarWinds says that nearly 18,000 of its customers, both in the government and in the private sector, receive tainted software updates from March to June of this year. The computer security firm FireEye first raised the alarm about the hack after its own systems were pierced. The company said the so-called supply chain attack constituted top-tier operational tradecraft. In a joint statement after being briefed on the hack, James Inhofe, the Republican chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and Jack Reed, the ranking Democrat on that committee, said, and I quote, the cyber intrusion appears to be ongoing and has the hallmarks of a Russian intelligence operation. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the CISA, said the hack poses a grave risk to federal, state, and local governments, as well as private companies and organizations, and that removing the malware will be, quote, highly complex and challenging. I certainly want to get your feedback on that. Glenn Gerstel, who was the National Security Agency's general counsel from 2015 to 2020, said, and I quote, it's as if you wake up one morning and suddenly realize that a burglar has been going in and out of your house for the last 
six months. Dave, just how much damage has been done in your estimation? How serious is the ongoing risk? And how capable is the U.S. government to contain the additional damage from this hack? I think at the early stages right now, I think it's almost impossible to say how much damage has actually been done. It's easy to conclude that it is quite a lot, or perhaps immeasurable. At the same time, the, the levels of access that would be gained via this type of attack, I mean, I mean we're really talking tier zero level network management software here. So this is, this is a tool that companies use to monitor and manage, I mean, often every device in their entire enterprise network, right? Um, that said, the, the way that the federal government tends to do things is a little bit different, sometimes a little more out of date or, uh, and sometimes more secure. I'd, I'd be interested to learn just how much access to actual classified data this is the big million-dollar question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And my my initial assumption would be that, for the most part, even if even if some of this malware were to be installed on classified networks, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't have the access to reach out to the command and control infrastructure and actually be used by the adversary. We've we've seen a number of companies. I mean, like you said, there's about eighteen thousand, according to uh, to SolarWinds, that had this malware pushed out to them. Of those that have actually seen targeted use of that, uh, at least according to uh, FireEye CEO Kevin Mandio, it's it's around fifty. Again, and and this is this is maybe through SolarWinds telemetry, maybe through their own analysis. I'm not sure where he got that number. I I, I couldn't find that information, but I think it's safe to say that you know there's there's probably that ballpark, maybe maybe higher. Uh, the fact that this is likely the, the threat actor that, that we all probably think it is at this point. Uh, yeah, so, I think the attribution so, is clear on this. I don't think you have to be a cyber cyber yeah. genius like you to, <laughs> to, to connect those dots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, as, as you know, as in conversations we've had in the past, I mean, my, my first attribution question is, especially for something like this, is whose foreign policy objectives does this advance? Uh, even, even before I start looking at some of the techniques used, right? But Certainly the way this was done, the, the patience with which it was done, the level of sophistication, my gut feel with it, and, and I'm anxious to hear both of yours, is that this is this is building a, a long-term collection infrastructure for an intelligence agency. It's That's, not it's not an yeah. overt attack, it's not the cyber pearl harbor that we keep hearing about. I, I mean we can we can choose to view it that way, but I think we need to understand what the intent was, uh, you know, before we get into a security dilemma sort of scenario. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a great segue because I know I got a bit to say, but I know John's got a lot more to say about this than I do. But I mean, this was carried out by the SVR. Yeah. And when you look at the Russian intelligence services, the SVR is, they're not the cowboys at the GRU, for example. The, right. the GRU, they're, they're into disruption. The SVR are the gentlemen intelligence you know, service that are there. They're patient, long-term espionage intelligence gathering. So that, I think that's what we have there. And since Sergei Narishkin, the former Speaker of the State Duma, the, the vehemently anti-Western, anti-American, very hawkish former Speaker of the State Duma, took over the SVR back in October of 2016, the SVR has really stepped up its game 
in the Russian intelligence constellation. John, you've been on the front lines in the battle against Russian espionage. And this, like I said, this hack appears to have been carried out by the SBR under Nodishkin's guidance. In your estimation, John, what were the Russians after here? Was it a fishing expedition or was there a very specific goal? How does this fit into the kind of larger trends in Russian tradecraft that you've observed over the years? Well, I agree with David and his sort of speculation was, but let me sort of step back and talk a little bit about the SVR and what we've seen and not seen the last couple of years. So obviously the SVR is their foreign intelligence service. It's like the CIA, very human agent focused, but they do have a good cyber capability. We saw that the 2016 election. But you know, as someone who sort of put together espionage operations over time, you know, one thing I want to sort of make clear to anybody who might listening is oftentimes these operations, they don't come together with some genius idea and then it's all put together with this clever, you know, stuff. Oftentimes operations, they don't begin with a big plan. Rather they take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. Exactly. And so and then they walk their way in and develop a plan as they go. So I can speculate, and I'm making this part up, but say they had a source at SolarWinds, maybe an ethnic Russian coder or somebody who was working there, and they realized that, hey, we actually have an ability to put in some some software here or a backdoor here. And then as they learned more about that, they were able to then figure out where this is used and then slowly watch how it's being used and take their time as they figured out a network map of the people they could use this capability against. Now, of course, I clearly I don't know that that's the case. I don't want to suggest that you know Russians are automatically you know going to spy for the Russian intelligence service, but you know somehow this really sensitive and covert code got into the Solar Winds supply chain here. So so something went on there. Your goal can change over time as as you see what's possible. So it does appear like it was espionage. But once you're in these networks, your ability over time to, you know, perhaps change data, take actions or sort of own parts of networks for future use are certainly possible. And then just a couple of other things to add. One is, you know, we haven't seen as much of the SVR, you know, from 2016 as we started to really focus on what the Russians are doing against us. We've seen a lot of GRU activity. And then you've seen recently with these assassination attempts against Navalny and others in Berlin and places that the FSB has been involved. And I think a lot of sort of practitioners and people who work in this space are waiting to see what the SVR piece is, because the SVR is is a very talented and serious worldwide Mm -hmm. intelligence service. And the fact that we haven't seen human sources or sophisticated cyber activity doesn't mean it wasn't there. It's just a matter of, uh, of trying to figure out where it is. One other comment that we talked about whether they've gotten into classified networks, and that's not clear yet. But also there's tremendous information that you can get in a damage down the line in unclassified networks. We've seen the Chinese a few years ago, you know, download and take information from Office of Personnel Management, OPM, and Mm -hmm. then use that and weaponize that information around the world to figure out a lot of American diplomats and American intelligence officers. Everybody's security clearance. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so this, you know, this does appear to be from what we know, and it's going to, it's going to take time to figure out what's happening here in espionage operation, the kind of thing that we do and want to do. And so some of this talk by politicians, in other words, that this is a akin to a war or that type of thing. I think at this point, that's irresponsible. And, and there are ways to deal with this and, and potentially hit back, but to suggest that this is something crazy and unusual in an active war, I, I, something I don't buy into. 
Yeah, I think the context within which this is happening is, is contributing to that. John, a couple of follow-ups here. Just looking at the agencies that we know were targeted, and again, that list is not exhaustive. Does that suggest anything to you? Because there's some obvious ones on there, like the Pentagon and the Department of Homeland Security and the Energy Department, for example. But then there's the U.S. Postal Service, the National Institutes of Health, Commerce and Treasury, I get. And there was just a report yesterday that actually the top leadership at Treasury, their emails were targeted. Incidentally, we learned that not from the U.S. government, but from Microsoft, which is actually very interesting. But what does the target list suggest to you, judging from what we know so far? Well, again, I step back to there's always the, you know, many times in operations, it's what opportunities present themselves. And if you're trying to stay hidden and they, as they start to map networks, they might figure these are places they can go and, and gain information and, and, and keep stealthy. So I don't know for sure. But in this day and age, frankly, there's such an interest in getting data sets and big data that can be used and run against you know, high-speed computers that there's a lot of places you wouldn't think would have information that is mm-hmm. tremendously important. But you know, I, I can imagine the Postal Service, just the sheer amount of knowledge of American citizens that can be mm-hmm. used you know, for, for voting patterns or for you know, where people live or all kinds of things that I, you know, I can't even think of. There is oftentimes benefit in getting into these things and having that sort of knowledge there. And you may not even know what you, how you can weaponize it today, but having that access could give you something in the future that could tie to another operation. Right, to help. right. And also, John, I was kind of taken with your hypothetical there and with a caveat that it was a hypothetical. But does this suggest that you need to step up the clearance process in these like uh, third party contractors that work with the government? I mean, I know, right, you do have to get clearances when you're a government contractor in sensitive areas. But does this suggest that there are deficiencies in that process? Do we need to step that up a little bit? Because that is a vulnerability. Well, I'm going to be interested to hear what David says about this. And, and I don't know what those processes are. And I think there's a lot of software that isn't necessarily originally set up as government contracting. But this isn't new. There's been Nick Russians and Chinese in a lot of these big Silicon Valley tech companies that over time, the FBI and others have found that they were up to no good or they stole mm-hmm. stuff and fled the country or you know, were involved in these type of things. And so, again, I want to be careful in suggesting that we're, we're looking at certain ethnic groups or whatever, but it's not us that do it. It's the Russians that do it or the Chinese. They're the ones that are targeting these people and oftentimes twisting their arms or twisting their families back home or whatever to give them this kind of access. So I don't know if there's something to change with the process, but in terms of educating some of these places that this is a potential vulnerability and something to sort of watch over because this didn't just affect government systems. This could be affecting lots and lots of private sector. We, yeah, no, Microsoft said it's identified more than 40 government agencies, think tanks, non-governmental organizations, and IT companies infiltrated by the hack. Four in five were in the U.S., but nearly half of them, nearly half of them tech companies. But there are also victims in Canada, Mexico, Belgium, Spain, the U.K., Israel, and the United Arab Emirates, just to name a few. Dave, did you want to add anything to what John said? And I got a couple of things I wanted to run by you as well. Yeah, no, I, nothing, nothing off the top of my head. I, and John, what you had just said, you'd be interested to hear my thoughts on is as far as the, the security involved in adding some of these things on the government networks. I mean, as of right now, and, and this is this is actually the perfect attack to discuss this, because there was nothing wrong with the software when it got added, right? This is something that, that was added and then years later, through some illicit access, was changed, right? And and I think that 
the process is in place currently to uh, to do some of these security assessments are probably just fine. The, the real takeaway from my point of view with this is you have to be very, very rigid and consistent with checking everything all the way along the way. I mean, the, the way that FireEye initially taught this was they actually go in and verify every single multi-factor authentication registration via SAML tokens, right? This is something that not many companies out there do. Clearly, the more rigorous ones do, FireEye taught it. But as you noted earlier, they had been active on the network for months and months and months long before this even happened. And and from the viewpoint of a lot of the tools that would be used to to try to catch this thing, I mean, this looked like authorized activity. Like I said, I, I think the real takeaway from that point of view is is that you just have to maintain that vigorousness with with the security. I mean, every day, right? It, it, it's it's not something you can do once and then and then you're done. Dave, how how ongoing? Even the the fact that we know about this now is the threat still ongoing? I mean, can damage still be done even though we we know about it? How how hard is it to extract? This, this malware and these Trojan horses from our systems, or do they do they kind of take on a life of their own and there's nothing we can do, kind of like a virus? Well, so, so I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a great comparison. So the first thing that an attacker typically does when they gain access to something, and a lot of people are surprised to hear it, is they'll actually fix the vulnerability that they use to gain access to whatever mm-hmm. system. And they'll do that so no one else can get access to it. Then, uh-huh. then They'll come in and usually the second thing they're going to do is make sure that they have other ways of accessing it. <laughs> so, so the question is, right now we have the, the information on the initial malware tool that was sent out, right? And we have a number of what's called IOCs, indicators of compromise, that are being pushed out throughout the industry. A lot of, a lot of the cybersecurity companies are out there looking for these on, on their customers' networks. And those are the known ones. Mm-hmm. So if it's just that, then yeah, you can reasonably get rid of this. Now keep in mind, I mean, you're talking about a lot of companies with a lot of malware on a lot of systems, right. potentially, right? So, this, yeah. so this is no easy task, as you saw with the NotPetya attack, right? Right. And this this stuff, and and thankfully this wasn't manipulated or used in a uh, like ransomware type scenario or something like that but you know and and typically you wouldn't expect the svr to do something like that no it's not their style potential for some bad actor within it to leak some access or give some access to their buddy and the organized crime world as well no well what would keep me up at night is that this was an espionage operation and that's dangerous enough but what if this were like a like a cyber attack in in a real sense this shows our systems to be much more vulnerable than i'm quite frankly, comfortable with. I mean, Dave, another thing I wanted to get out of you is how and why did we miss this for so long? We learned much about this hack from First Eye, and then we also just learned about the breach at the Treasury Department at the top levels of the Treasury Department from Microsoft. None of the alarm bells came from USG here. Yeah. Well, so, and, and I'll, I'll be interested to hear John's take on this too. <laughs> if, if I was the USG, I might not broadcast that this happened right off the bat. Okay, you, okay, fair enough, fair enough, okay. So so I'll, so I'll leave that there. But I'll also <laughs> add, I mean, the, the first people that detected this is a company that is 
you know, their focus is detecting things like this, right? Um, you mean first eye? Fire eye, yeah, yeah. So, fire eye. And, and like I said, I mean, the way that they detected it was not through any kind of technical means, but it was just through actually following these these best security practices that, that are in place that a lot of companies stopped doing or, or never bothered to implement, right? So that's how we missed it is because most of, well, I say we, I'm not in that we, I'm not part of the U.S. government or, or a company that was breached or anything like that. But that's how it was missed, I should say. Is that I'm, I'm, most okay. of this activity looked like legitimate activity from valid users. Right. Dave, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the thing you said you'd be interested in hearing John's take on is that, is it possible USG in this modern spy versus spy game we're playing now in the cyber world, is it possible USG saw it and said, all right, let's just watch these guys? Does it look like that was the case, John, or do you? Well, the, I mean, the obvious answer is I don't know, but that would be the standard answer, right? So there's okay. there's a process of both cauterizing and protecting yourself, but there's also, this is how sort of intelligence goes. And it's like on other areas, for example, you can imagine in like counterterrorism world, there's there's people that want to take down, you know, terrorist networks and terrorist communication systems. And then there's intelligence officers that are watching them. And that's their way to learn about those those systems so they can take them down further on. It's the same, you know, in, in law enforcement, you know, you might want to watch what a group is doing so they can take down the big boss instead right. of the lower people. So this is essentially the same thing here as you, you want to do as much, you know, learning what the other side's doing when they don't know that you're watching. And so right. let's hope that happened. What we don't know, and it'll be interesting someday, is, is did FireEye talk to the government before putting out that information or did mm -hmm. the government learn from FireEye? Or, you know, there's, there, you know, there's a time there's a lot thing here that we don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd certainly sleep a lot easier if that, if that were the case. John, before we move into the second half in terms of like, what are we going to do about this? I wanted to kind of just throw something out there because you anticipated one of my questions when you said this was just normal espionage. This is just kind of what all countries effectively do. And I was going to ask this question, is this something qualitatively different? And I wanted to quote from a, a blog post from Microsoft, actually, in the last couple of days, which said, and I quote, this is not espionage as usual, even in the digital age. Instead, it represents an act of recklessness that created a serious technological vulnerability for the United States and the world. I assume you would disagree with that sentiment for Microsoft? Well, first of all, I don't know the extent, and maybe Microsoft knows more, but I don't think of Microsoft as the expert on what is espionage and what is not espionage. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that the United States is doing, you know, quite a bit of this type of activity overseas. And, and you can look at the activity in different ways. And so, you know, we might have things in systems that are put there so that when we need access to them, we can get them. But if you belong to that company or you own that system, that might look quite dangerous to you because that might suggest we could turn off the lights or we could do some real damage. Right. And so is that us being there so that we can monitor and do espionage or is it potential to do something more? And so I can understand why Microsoft would be you know, upset and I can understand why anybody who's getting attacked like this could be really uh, worried about it. But I don't think, at least from what I've seen publicly, that this looks different than right. the kind of espionage okay. agencies do. Dave, I take it I agree with that just from your uh, you're nodding your head. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And yeah, I mean, this, that's, that's been my area of focus for a long time as well. So uh, yeah, specifically on the cyber side. So, yeah. Right. No, my, my, my big picture takeaway on this is that this is happening not in isolation. It's happening in the context of a lot of other 
kind of Russian malign activities. So it is natural that we look at this in the most negative light possible, given everything else that's going on. These like very weird kind of sonic attacks on U.S. diplomats abroad, for example, the poisoning of Navalny, the hacking of the elections in 16, all the all the malign, the support for far right groups, the, the troll farms. I mean, when you take all of this in context, right, it's easy to look at this in the most malign light possible. When you look at it in isolation, yeah, it's espionage and it's stuff our guys do too. The other big takeaway from this is it just reinforces my belief that we effectively misread globalization and thinking that globalization is effectively a, a benign phenomenon and that it's something that's going to spread liberal values. This, again, is the result. This vulnerability is the result of globalization. Right. It's something that the Russians have weaponized. Um, and on that note, I guess we can segue into our second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the potential aftermath of the great hack of 2020. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. The Power Vertical podcast is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is the one and only John Cipher, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, who served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally. These days, John, like me, is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Also joining us from an undisclosed location in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is is David Venable, a former intelligence officer at the U.S. National Security Agency and currently vice president of cybersecurity at Messergy. Dave is also a member of the Cyber Advisory Council and an instructor on cybersecurity at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Гоним вас. С новым веком. So what happens now? The great Russian hack of 2020, of course, was not their first, and the United States is not their only target. In recent years, Russia has hacked, just to name a few, the Warsaw Stock Exchange, a French television station, a German steelmaker, the German Bundestag, the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. State Department, the White House, and the Democratic National Committee, and that is far from an exhaustive list. Dave, are we helpless? Is this the new normal? Or are there defensive measures we can take that we are not taking at the moment that can protect us from this? And... You know, this is an old question you and I have been talking about for years. Is it time to go on the offensive and what would that look like? Yeah, so we're, well, I'll, I'll say yes and no to the are we helpless question. We were somewhat helpless to the fact that this is just the future. This is, this is how things are now. And this is how things are going to be for the foreseeable future for now. We're not helpless in the sense that we have a lot of interesting techniques that we're, that we're building. We have a lot of defensive techniques that we're, we're doing quite well. 
you know, the, the, the big problem with this is that the defenders have to get it right every single time, and the attackers only have to get it right once. And they can fail a million times, and if they get it right that one time, the, uh, the, they're in, right? So and it kind of goes back to what I was saying of just implementing these security best practices and, and rigorously following them day in, day out. That's, that's how this got caught. That's how the next one will get caught, too. I was on a, a panel. You were you were actually there, Brian, when uh, there, was, there was several people was with the Warsaw Security Forum several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so several folks on the panel went through their uh, their initial spiel on on cybersecurity, cyber uh, offense, defense, all of these things, and and we got to the end. And uh, a very prominent professor there in Poland, who's advisor to the president, and he kind of looked over at us and and he basically said. Yeah, all these guys keep saying this stuff, but here in a few years, it's going to be one AI fighting another AI, and by the time any any humans involved, <laughs> it'll long be over. So we're in William Gibson's like a bike drop at the end of that, right? It was, it was pretty funny, but uh, sorry, what were you going to say, Ryan? No, I said it's we're in William Gibson's world in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I. I think that's probably a bit. I, I don't. I don't think we're that close to that point yet. We do. My my company, in fact, employs a lot of machine learning and and uh, you know AI type technology that that we're building up. A lot of a lot of companies out there doing this, and, and it's quite effective. But but at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure that we're we're seeing it quite like that. Where where I would say we're really just helpless, sitting on our hands, waiting waiting for the bad guys to do stuff. Is it going to be a technological arms race, if you is? Is the solution technological, or is it better well, security on the human end? So, so I think it's I think it's blending the two. And without without that, I mean, we see a lot of great security technology. For instance, the the target breach several years ago, right? Yeah, you you tons of great technology. And and what happened there is it's actually similar in, in the sense there was a supply chain attack. Someone breached their HVAC provider. Their HVAC provider had some level of access to the network. They used that to get onto the target network, and and over a, a period of time, gained access to you know just millions and millions of credit card numbers. Right. So, I think that's just the nature of it, right? But they had all kinds of technology, really good technology, that was catching every single one of these these attacks and alerting to it. But those alerts were lost to the haystack of millions and millions of other alerts that some analysts are sitting there scrolling through. And how right. do you how do you pick out that one thing? Right. And and I think that's I mean that's kind of where the, a lot of technology is going right now is is consolidating all of these and weeding out some of the the excess and and identifying what the real alert is. Right. Yeah. That and, and that's why I say I think it's a blend. I, I think you have to have the right people. The, the, with the right level of training, and we're seeing just this huge cyber talent shortage. Right. We, have, we have tons and tons of jobs that are unfilled because there aren't enough people with the right skill and training to, to do the job. So, yeah, I, I really just think it's a blend of combining that human intelligence, that, that human professionalism with the right deployment of the right technology. 
Right. No, it's it's certainly gonna gonna keep folks like you in in uh, employed for the, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Uh, Dave, should we go on the offense? I mean, this is something you and I have talked a lot about, and another conversation you and I have had going back is you know the creation of a cyber branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. Right. I mean, we're moving. We don't have that formally in the Armed Forces right now. In addition to being an NSA vet, you're also an Air Force vet, and there wasn't always a U.S. Air Force. It kind of grew out of the U.S. Army at one point. Would this, you know, is this something, you know, do we need a branch of the armed forces to protect our cyber assets and to protect our cyber domain? Or, or can this be done in another way? Should we go on the offense? So, so we do have U.S. Cyber Command or similar to what was U.S. Space Command, which is right. space, right? So I, I would anticipate the eventual creation of, of a cyber force. Now, I would distinguish this, and and as of now, up until up until today, I mean, NSA and Cyber Command are in the same building, led right. by same commander, and operate under two very different types of legal authorities, right? Title Ten, Title Fifty. One is a a military capacity, and one is an espionage capacity. I've actually been a long proponent of separating these two capabilities out. I think it made sense in the beginning. You had a limited number of people with this skill set, and there's a lot of overlap in this skill set. And it just made sense because of the lack of talent to have it as one organization. But here's where that becomes confusing to an adversary. is Just, just like we discussed, hey, because this is the FDR, we think it was probably done with this reason. Now, if, if both your intelligence collection or organization and your like full-on attack mode organization is effectively the same organization. It's the same operator sitting in the same building, just working under a different legal authority that day. That can become confusing if you're the adversary. It becomes harder to tell, is this is this day-to-day espionage or is this a full-on attack? Right. And of course, there's always some overlap, as John mentioned, in between, you know, now, now that you have some access, you might choose to use it differently. But I think in determining intent, which is obviously important, I think there's some really sound reason to separate these capabilities out. Now, right. do I think we should go on an offensive? As I'm sure you already know, I'm about to say, yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think yeah, no, we're, we're on the uh, same page on that one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, and frankly, how many times are we going to sit here and watch this stuff play out and just keep taking it? Now, I'm not advocating for a full-on war or anything crazy like that, but as General Petraeus once said, something along the lines of Mr. Putin will keep pushing and pushing and pushing until he reaches a firm object. And to this point, he has not. Right. And right. and the fact is, we, we just, you know, are, are we going to respond with more sanctions that have, you know, we've, which is what we've always done, which have brought us here? I, right. You know, what's, what's the yeah. old definition of insanity doing the the same, same thing over and over, over expecting different results. That, yeah. That's what it feels like at this point. No, and I do think we are collectively as the West getting over our aversion to cyber offense. I remember several years back, I was I was speaking at a conference at the Polish Defense Ministry, and I raised just raised the idea 
of a cyber offensive capability. And the NATO official in the room, I thought he was going to have a, a stroke because, you know, uh, yeah. officially we don't do cyber offense. Right. Um, the alliance doesn't officially. So I but I think we are collectively getting over this because we're basically it's unilateral disarmament. We're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. I want to talk to, to turn to John, because, John, when you were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with former FBI special agent Clint Watts, you both seem to suggest in different ways and at different points in the, in the program that it was time to go on the offense. Clint gave us this very memorable quote. He said, as long as you're defending, you're losing. It would be like saying, I'm just going to build a fort in my backyard and hope for the best. And you said, uh, quote, unquote, we don't need a good relationship with Moscow. We need to contain them. We too often have ignored Putin's bad behavior in hopes of better relations. I know we again, we're saying this is just uh, normal espionage, but taken together in the context of everything else, there is kind of a cumulative effect to all of this right now. John, have we crossed a Rubicon that could kind of move us to taking a more offensive posture in this with a goal of it being containment, uh, of course? Well, well, so I I think we do on a political area, but I think we're actually in a bigger historical place here. So, you know, after World War II and, you know, when nuclear weapons were designed and started to be, and and there was an arms race and such, it took a number of years of academics and military people and to come together and figure out what what was deterrence? How, How are we going to you know, live in this world with nuclear weapons where we're going to use them on the battlefield where they just another weapon. They said, and it took some time to, before we actually determined, you know, what was our sort of policy and our strategy to deter and defend. And I don't think we've got there with cyber. We've been talking about it for a long time and it's not really clear what what is a kinetic attack or an attack that might have a kinetic response. How do you deter? How do you defend? I mean, and, and the Russians have a whole different view of how those things happen. So I think we're in a, this place where those things are starting to gel and come together and there's going to be some discussion with this new administration. Um, the NSA director in Akasoni has talked about, you know, their strategy is to defend forward, which means doing essentially what the Russians just did to us, to having tools in place in, in adversaries' networks. And there was some talk that that would be a, a form of deterrence, that if we if they knew that we were in their networks, they would, we wouldn't dare to mess with us. Well, that turned out not to be true, at least in this case. They're still sort of pushing back up against us. So, so I think those bigger questions have to be figured out. But in terms of just the political response, what we're talking about here, there's clearly, this has hit a nerve. And so there's clearly a political pressure to sort of respond. And exactly what you said, Brian. So the concern and why people are talking about this as an act of war is, is, is the response that we're hearing is not wholly rational because this is almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. So there's, you know, there's been these reports about directed energy weapons against our diplomats. There's been right. talk of bounties on our soldiers in Afghanistan. And they, they messed in our 2016 election and continue to do disinformation. And they've been, you know, doing the same against us and our and our allies around the world. There's been assassinations around the world. They've been using their security services for to dope their Olympic teams and Paralympic teams. So they've been kicked out of the Olympics. Um, you know, they're, they've been messing with us in Syria, Libya, the Taliban. So I think all of these things have led up. And, and essentially, we have not pushed back effectively for the last 10, 12, 15 years. You know, we've said when, when they misbehave and, and do malign, malign activity, we say, well, let's let's just try again and communicate and we'll reset and try again. And I think we've gotten to the point where I think people understand right now that, that Vladimir Putin hates the United States and hates the West. And he is not someone who can be reasoned with on this issue. It's not we're not going to convince him that we're good guys and he should act like a, a good citizen in the, in the international right. space. And so this next administration is really going to have to come up with 
plans of how to push back against Russia. Now, on the, the upside, which is good, is there's not a lot we need from Russia. We don't need to have good relations with Russia. I mean, there's some things with arms control and there's just day-to-day issues that, right. are, that are value to them and us too. Those, those kind of things can be worked. But, but Russia is not a critical player for us that we have to, we have to give into this type of activity. We, we can push back. The one thing I would sort of point out, though, is this cyber attack does not need to be responded with another cyber attack. In other words, we don't know what, what deterrence is, but we don't have to just hit back in the exact same way. We can look at what is our strength and use what our strength is against their weakness. Mm-hmm. Because what they've been doing is this form of political warfare, this form of asymmetric warfare, where they look for our weaknesses and take advantage of them. And we haven't pushed back. And so I think you know, as the bigger, richer, more powerful country with more powerful allies, we should uh, take a good look at that and figure out what is a way to push back against them effectively yeah. where we're using our strength against their weakness. Yeah, no, I've long advocated like escalating where we have escalation dominance. And that's that's mainly in the financial sphere. A couple of thoughts on what well, you gave us a lot to chew on here, uh, John, but on your bit about nuclear deterrence, I am reminded of a conversation I had. God, it was a couple of years ago with our mutual friend, Donald Jensen, former U.S. State Department official who was an arms inspector at one point in his career. And he and I were talking about we should study the early nuclear age about how about, you know, deterrence and apply those lessons to the cyber world in terms of creating kind of a mutually assured destruction and establishing regimes, um, because there was a nuclear regime in effectively kept us safe throughout the Cold War. We also need different kind of escalation ladders for the 21st century. I've often talked about the need for a a new style DEFCON escalation ladder. So the rules are basically clear of when we are moving to a higher level of threat and alert. Um, and I don't know if this attack would have you know, changed the DEFCON level. I'm not speaking of a nuclear DEFCON, but I'm thinking of a, a newly modeled DEFCON for the kind of non-kinetic hybrid war thing, which cyber is certainly a part of. In terms of policy responses, I mean, something I've been advocating and a term I've been trying to brand relentlessly is the term hybrid containment. Um, and we need to kind of come up with a policy, a doctrine of containment like we had in the, you know, we we put into place in the 40s and 50s to contain the military expansion of Soviet communism. We need to put in this this doctrine of containment, but it's not just military. We're we're defending against banks as much as tanks. You know, we're defending against cyber attacks as much as missile attacks. And we have to find a way to protect us ourselves in this globalized world we're in, where we don't have two hermetically sealed blocks facing off against each other. And militarily, you have two normative systems integrated deeply into each other's societies, information spaces, financial spaces, and cyberspaces. And how do you contain in that? It's it's a tricky, tricky uh, business, but it's essential. A couple of weeks back, I had Michael Carpenter on, a foreign policy advisor to President-elect Biden, and we we talked about this a bit, but there are no easy answers. Dave, I wanted to also be, we're, we're bumping up against the end. I'm getting word from the, the control room gods that we have to wrap it up, but I wanted to throw one thing at you. I recall back about a year or so ago, if I'm not mistaken, there was a U.S. kind of, I don't want to call it a cyber attack, but we did kind of attack Russian infrastructure and put installed kind of malware in there is if i remembering the reports i heard am i correct in that can you talk about that at all was this something along the lines of what john was talking about about potentially going on the offensive yeah so i i'd I'd rather not go into 
<laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'd rather not get into a conversation on uh, U.S. offensive past stuff. Uh, we, we can talk hypotheticals all day. Okay, let's but, talk hypotheticals. Okay, yeah. I mean, hypothetically, what uh, would such a thing do, and what would it achieve? So, it, I think it, I think it really depends. Rob Rob Joyce uh, went on a radio program or, or a podcast and, and did an interview and actually said that things have changed a bit, that we had the mentality that when we found like a, a zero day, this is, this is a vulnerability in software that even the manufacturer is unaware of. Right. So, so Rob Joyce went on, uh, I believe it was called the, the risky business podcast and, and said that we, we were coming from the mentality of, if we had that, we were just going to hang on to it, not use it until something happened where we absolutely had to. And mentioned that this was changing and that we're much more open to doing more tactical type attacks or, or I mean, attack is probably a strong word, but uh, make, make use of these types of vulnerabilities and exploits in, in a more short-term tactical sort of sense than just in either response or uh, for a long-term strategic objective. So based on that, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I think it, I think something like that starts to make more sense, especially if you're seeing, let's say a, a hypothetical, uh, hypothetical hostile actor currently engaged in some type of activity, let's say disinformation or whatever else. And, and it might make sense to go in and uh, shut them down for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and and based on, based well, we on, have to we have to we have to troll we have to troll farm I, I, is what I was referring to. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> I uh, read about it in the New York yeah. Times. It wasn't exactly top secret. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so I think I think we've seen a shift where where we'll start doing that type of thing more more frequently, and and I, you know over the long run, I, I think that makes a lot more sense. Uh, these these things are. One fairly rare, but but their usefulness is is typically short term. So using using these types of attacks in, in a in a more tactical way starts making more sense. And and again, I I think this comes back to conveying intent for for at least some of the time. Yeah, if we come in and and shut off power to a troll farm and not to nearby hospitals or whatever else. I mean, right? You know, I I, I think. With with those types of attacks, if if we're very, you know, precise with it and and use it responsibly and and only go after people who are doing bad things, I think that's perfectly legitimate. And, and I think we're in an age where, uh, you know, that one of one of the very senior folks at at NSA is publicly stating that he's more than happy to do this now. So, so I'm just <laughs> happy, to, happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, right. John, last word to you before you wrap it up. Any last thoughts? Yeah, I, I think your discussion about sort of looking at the, the post-World War II age, you know, sort of Dean Edgerson, president of creation, where, you know, as we move into some more and more sophisticated computing and power computing and AI and these things, we, we need to get a handle on the strategic and, and part of this. And what's hard about it is, this whole thing, it's not just, you know, a nuclear weapon is a pretty blunt instrument, whereas, whereas you know, these variety of things with, with the internet, with our cyber capabilities involved, on one hand, it's intelligence and espionage, but it can also be used for military purposes. It also used to be for criminal or economic purposes, and they all 
all mixed together. So there's state actors, there's non-state actors, there's secrecy. So this is not an easy thing to figure out rules and regulations for. And we're going to stumble on our way there. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's hope this stumble doesn't end up in, you know, kinetic war. But we better figure this out sometime soon. All right. Well, on that note, we shall wrap it up. That is all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I am an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area has been John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. John also served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally, and is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. These days, John, like me, is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Also joining us from an undisclosed location in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area has been David Venable, a former intelligence officer for the U.S. National Security Agency and currently Vice President of Cybersecurity at Messergy. David is also a member of the Cyber Advisory Council and an instructor on cybersecurity at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Thank you both for an enlightening and timely discussion. Thank you. It's fun. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn, she handles our all-important post-production duties, which make all of us sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. You can also access the podcast and read the Power Vertical blog and all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. You should also follow John and Dave on the Twitter as well. The Power Vertical podcast will indeed take a short break for the winter holidays. I'd like to wish everybody a happy new year and we'll be back in action in 2021. And until then, as always, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our awesome production team.